Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Center Campus, as well as those uh, joining us from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. You know, it's so good to see so many people here in this room. I'm absolutely excited because during COVID time, I preach right here to an empty room just before a camera. So it's so good to have you all, and I'm hoping that more people will start coming. <laughs> we are in a sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew called Family Matters. In Matthew chapters 18 and 19, the dominant theme revolves around relationships. Jesus talks about what relationships look like within the spiritual family of God called the church. And so far in this sermon series, we've touched on topics like parenting, marriage, and divorce. And today I want to address how we resolve conflicts within the church family. I tell you, nowhere are our Christian convictions tested than in the area of relationships. What we truly believe about God is reflected in the way we relate to one another. So how do we as Christians handle conflict? How do we resolve differences? Wait a minute. Christians and conflict? That should be an oxymoron, right? They don't go together. Now, I wish we can say churches have no conflicts, that we are so united as Christians, we are so loving and kind that we don't fight. But I'll be the first person to put up my hand and say that is just not true. If you want a conflict-free church, then you have to cap the church membership to one person. If you have more than one person, conflict is inevitable. And I came across an article that talked about uh, silly church conflicts, the things that church people fight over. It included things like argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the church foyer? The article writer added the comment, I just want to know who took the pictures. And an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church potluck. <laughs> well, jokes aside, conflicts happen in churches because we are an imperfect community. So what is important is how we handle these conflicts, how we manage them. And over the years, I've seen some immature ways in which people handle conflicts within the church. And as a result, I've come to this conclusion. How we deal with conflict is a clear expression of our spiritual maturity. And sadly, in times of conflict, grown-up adults act like junior high kids. They stop talking to one another, they gossip, they slander, they talk to others about the person that they are upset with, but never approach the person directly. And all along, they ignore how Jesus wants us to deal with conflict in His family, the church. So today, we're going to get really practical as we address this issue of how to resolve conflicts in a godly way. I think this is all the more relevant as we are coming out of this pandemic because of the varying opinions around COVID-19, vaccines, the government-imposed regulations, 
You know, the polarization that we are seeing around these issues is devastating. It's affecting our society, our churches, relationships with families, friends. And if we are not careful, it can affect the church's unity, and the enemy will have a heyday. Now, listen to me. God cannot use a divided church. When we harbor grudge and unforgiveness with one another, then we quench the work of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm talking today is especially relevant for this next season that we are entering into as a province and as a nation. A matured, God-honoring way of reconciliation is the need of the hour. So the text that we're going to look at today is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I realize we are addressing a sensitive topic, and we need your perspective, the truth of your word to bring clarity. I pray, O oh God, that our hearts will be receptive to what you have to say to us, that much grace will abound as we respond to your words in obedience so that we will be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. So come and speak to us, convict us where areas where we need to change, bring transformation and healing, that ultimately all things that we do here will glorify and exalt the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we try to interpret what this text means for us today, we need to place it in its original context. And if you look at the context of Matthew chapter 18, right before the text that we read is the parable of the wandering sheep. Now, our Heavenly Father presents Himself as the good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. So leaving the 99 behind, he pursues the one lost sheep because that one matters to him. That is the heart of God. And we need to exemplify this same spirit in dealing with conflict. You don't run over people because people matter. And right after the text we read is the parable of the unmerciful servant. This person refuses to forgive another individual, even though he has been forgiven of his enormous debt by the king. 
And that parable is a reminder that when we encounter conflict, it is easy to allow resentment to have the better of us. And this parable reminds us that we need to forgive and not hold on to any grudges. So by placing a text within its context, we realize conflict resolution is not about attacking people. It's not about going at them with all guns blazing. The intent is not, I want you to pay for your actions. But the emphasis in all that we do is restoration and exemplifying the heart of Jesus. The sinning believer needs to be restored in their relationship with God and in their relationship with the community of believers. This is the essence of what Jesus is teaching us here in this text. And if we miss this point, we will end up with a legalistic formula that will just backfire on us. So let's look at what Jesus says here in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now when Jesus says here, when your brother or sister sins, he's talking about a fellow believer. This is another disciple of Jesus. So the principle that is outlined here is intended for relationships within the spiritual family, particularly a local church congregation. You don't have to necessarily follow this when dealing with non-Christians. But you may very well be able to apply aspects of this Matthew 18 principle to all relationships, even those who are outside of the faith. But Jesus is giving this instruction specifically to the local church congregation. The Christian believer in question is guilty of sin, of clearly violating God's standards. So this is a, a serious issue. Now, when you look at verse 15, some of our Bible translations add the phrase, if your brother or sister sins against you. For instance, the English Standard Version translates it this way. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That is because some of the ancient Greek manuscripts include that little phrase, sins against you. So if this phrase, sins against you, is part of the text, then the reference here is to a sin that affects you personally. The assumption is that this sin has been committed by one believer against another Christian believer. But if this phrase is not part of the text, then the sin does not have to be personally committed against you, but you are confronting a known sin in another Christian's life, even though it has nothing to do with you. So there are two scenarios based on our reading of the text. On the one hand, we have someone who has sinned against you personally. On the other hand is a person who is living in known sin, but is not necessarily done this against you. Now, in light of the larger teachings of the Bible, I believe Matthew 18 principle can be applied to both cases. Whether a person is guilty of a particular sin that has become obvious, or is guilty of personally sinning against you, you can follow the principles that Jesus outlines here in our text in Matthew 18. Now, let me give you an example. 
If you know a married believer who's flirting with someone who's not their spouse, and you happen to take note of it, you feel uncomfortable about this because you know this family really well, you have very good relationship with them, then you need to go to the person and talk to them privately about it with a gentle spirit. It is the right thing to do. And you're not bringing here a tone of accusation and pointing fingers, but it's more a tone of inquiry to find out what exactly is happening so you can get the full picture. This is also true when there is a personal grievance. Oh, let's say someone from the church said something hurtful to you. Maybe uh, they treated you badly. Or maybe you had a disagreement and unkind words were being exchanged. What Jesus asks us to do is go to the person directly and address the issue with them. Whatever a person's fault may be, whether it is against you or not, when another Christian has violated clearly God's standards, then we don't advertise it. We don't get super spiritual and turn it into a prayer request, which is nothing but a sanctified form of gossip. We don't slander their name. We don't turn it into a social media post. And more importantly, we don't ignore and sweep the offense under the rug. But we go in humility to the person and let them know how they have sinned. And before you go, make sure you check your heart attitude before God. That is such a critical piece. So what this involves is a loving, personal conversation done in a gentle spirit, not to bulldoze the individual, not to pile feelings of condemnation on them, not to make them feel bad or embarrass them, but the intent or goal in doing this is restoration. Here's a caveat, though. This Matthew 18 principle does not apply to all cases. For instance, it does not apply to cases where the offense involved is of a criminal nature. For instance, you are not obligated to go to someone who has sexually abused you. You don't have to privately reach out to a person if such an action is unsafe or deemed to be inappropriate. In situations where a person is guilty of a criminal offense, and we have to report it to the authorities that God has placed over us. Now, having clarified that, let me challenge the most immature way some Christians handle relational conflicts, the typical conflicts that we see in the church. Rather than doing what Jesus has clearly asked us to do here in our text, some of us do the exact opposite. When someone has offended you, you stop talking with that person. We quickly sever the relationship over a disagreement. We cut off all forms of communication with them. We unfriend them on Facebook. We block their text messages and their emails. We avoid the person altogether, but we never address the issue with them directly. 
when we do that to another Christian believer, do we realize that we are living in disobedience to God? So rather than cutting off communication by default, Jesus is challenging us to have the courage to speak to the person about it. Because this is a practical message, I'll illustrate this for us. Let's say you've been hurt by another believer. You go to them and say, I want to talk to you about something. Now, the other day in our community group meeting, you said something that put me in a negative light before everyone in the group. It made me feel very uncomfortable, and I want you to know that it hurt my feelings. Or you may say in case of a personal sin, I saw you walking out of the bar the other day, and I know you have struggled with alcoholism before. And I care for you as a brother or sister in the Lord. So I'm coming here just to seek clarification. Maybe I'm not seeing this right or I don't have the full picture. Is everything okay in your relationship with Jesus? See, the beauty of this approach is it's discreet. No one else is involved who don't have to be part of this conversation. We go directly to the source and address the conflict in a matured way. And when there is a conflict and you had approach the person individually, the Holy Spirit of God is able to use your words to bring conviction and eventually repentance. The person may say to you, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to be condescending the other day. I didn't even realize that it hurt your feelings. But as I think about my actions, I can see that it was rude on my part to make those comments. Would you please forgive me? Or if they are guilty of a specific sin and you talk to them about it, like in the case of going to a bar when the person has a propensity to get drunk, they may actually thank you for pointing this out. They may say, I should have known better. You know, this is an area I've been struggling, and I want you to pray for me and even keep me accountable. The matter is settled in a mature manner, and you are brothers and sisters of the same spiritual family, and you have been restored in your relationship. Jesus says, if the person listens to you, you have won them over. You have gained your brother or sister. The immature way of handling conflict is, rather than going to the person, we go to others to vent out our frustrations with the individual. So if someone comes to you and vents about another believer, rather than encouraging that conversation, the right response from you should be, have you talked to the person about it? See, that is the God-honoring way of handling conflict, and it keeps gossip away from the church. Now, let me speak from the point of view of the one who has sinned. Here's the deal. It can be very challenging 
when another person confronts you of a sin that is present in your life. But when you're being gently confronted by another believer and you are guilty of doing wrong, you need to see it as a gift. Don't think, why is this person being so nosy? Why are they being oversensitive or too forthright? But receive it as a correction from the Lord himself. See, this is how relationships work within the church family. It's a spiritual family where we hold one another accountable. And we have a responsibility towards one another in helping us in our spiritual journey. And when I was brand new in the pastoral ministry, I was still single at the time, and a matured believer challenged me about something for which I am truly, truly grateful. He took me aside privately and said I want, he wanted to talk to me about something. He said, I saw you the other day talking to a young woman in your office, and I trust you and I don't believe anything inappropriate will ever happen. But knowing that there is an enemy and you need to guard your credibility and reputation as a spiritual leader, my advice to you is to meet with the opposite sex, not in your office, but in a public space, or have somebody else as part of the conversation. And as a young person, I needed to hear that. This was pure cold. It was a fine example of how the Matthew 18 principle should play out in our Christian lives. Not in an overbearing way, not trying to control or manipulate another individual, but this person actually had my best interest at heart. So when he issued the correction, I took it as from the Lord himself. Humility is the key to this entire process. Humility from the part of the offender as well as the one who has been offended needs to undergird this whole conflict resolution process. Now, I've given you an idealistic picture of how things will turn out and have presented it from a positive standpoint. Now, let's say the person refuses to humble themselves. They may say, well, I don't think I did anything wrong. It is your problem. You have a faulty perception. This has nothing to do with me, so go change yourself. Or if you confront someone about a particular sin, and even though you're doing it in love, with the spirit of humility, and they say to you, that's none of your business. You stay out of my personal life. Then Jesus tells us there is a step two to this process. Look at verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if the private conversation doesn't go well, if the person refuses to take responsibility for their actions and insist on going their own way, then you need to bring a few other believers into the mix. Jesus is basically quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And in the context of Deuteronomy, 
Moses is establishing the principle that when you are accusing another person of doing wrong, then you don't just go with one witness. You need two or three witnesses to confirm the case because that will eliminate any bias. So in the same way, two or three reliable, matured Christians can ensure that the accused is not being treated unfairly. It removes any prejudices or biases. Now, the interesting contrast between Matthew 18 and the principle in Deuteronomy is, as per the Old Testament law, the witnesses will be the first people to throw stones at the sinning offender. Whereas Jesus is calling the Christian witnesses not to throw stones, but to pave the way for reconciliation and restoration. So Jesus says when a private conversation doesn't work, bring two or three neutral Christian parties to this conversation who can weigh in and offer their perspective to this whole conversation. Now, the idea is not to find people who just agree with you and gang up against the offender. But once again, the goal is, from, is restoration coming from a heart that is in right relationship with God. So two or three witnesses appeal to the sinning individual and help them to understand the gravity of their actions and why they are in the wrong. Now, this part of the process is so significant that Jesus gives a special promise to the witnesses who are involved in the conflict. Now look at verses 19 and 20. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now, if you've been to any Christian prayer meeting, chances are you will hear someone quote this verse and say, where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. Now, that is true. We have the assurance that God is with us when we meet together as believers. But if you place this promise in the context of the passage and what Jesus is talking about, then what he's saying is, when the two or three witnesses gather together, to pray and talk about this situation of how to resolve the conflict, how to lovingly help the offender, Jesus says, I am with the witnesses and will honor their prayers for discernment. So the witnesses can go with the confidence that Jesus himself will make his appeal through them. So what Jesus outlines here is a God-honoring process of resolving conflict and dealing with sin inside the church. And so many times, I've seen this in my own personal life, many times the person who is resistant to a personal conversation now responds with humility as he hears from other witnesses. This brings them to the conclusion that they have actually sinned and they ask for forgiveness. And when that happens, we welcome the person back with open arms. There is no longer any discipline or punishment needed. We extend grace and forgiveness and welcome the offender back to the fold of the family. 
Now that is again a favorable outcome. There is a possibility that the Christian believer in question still refuses to repent of their sin, is bent on being rebellious, is determined to continue in their sinful ways, and is unwilling to change. Jesus says we escalate this to step three. Look at that text in verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. When step one and step two has failed in this conflict resolution process, then you bring the matter to the attention of the entire church. While it doesn't say this explicitly, it makes sense to bring this to the attention of the church leadership to take action. Now, once again, in humility, love, and grace, another opportunity is extended to the person to be restored in their relationship with God and restored in their relationship with those they have offended. There is no disciplinary action yet, but multiple opportunities are being extended for the person to acknowledge their sin. Now, if the offender chooses to ignore the pleas of the one they've hurt, of the witnesses, as well as the whole local church, then Jesus says such a person needs to be treated as an unbeliever. It means that their attitude shows they are not following Jesus. There is no evidence of salvation in their life. They may claim that they are followers of Jesus, but the way they are living their life doesn't confirm that reality. So treat them, Jesus says, like you would treat a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, this is an act of church discipline. Like we discipline our kids, it's not to punish them, but to teach them. In the same way, church discipline serves a purpose. It is not just dishing out a punishment with a that serves you right mindset. That is wrong. But we do this in a spirit of brokenness, wanting the very best for the sinning believer, that they will somehow repent and return back to the fold of God. This whole concept of church discipline may seem foreign to some of us. And I want you to know, God has given the church, us, the community of God's people, the authority to engage in something like this. A text says in verse 18, Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. People often use this text to refer to binding demonic <clears throat> spirits. But once again, you've got to put this in the right context of what Jesus is saying here. So this is talking about the decisions of the church in dealing with conflicts. When the church handles conflict in a godly way, God is fully behind them, supporting them in their decisions. Now, churches have been guilty of making authoritative decisions without consulting God, and 
those decisions don't reflect the heart of God and certainly are not endorsed by God. But when the church, in humility and in right spirit, seek God prayerfully, then they have the backing of heaven. And even if our decisions may be countercultural or unpopular, the church can stick with those decisions because we have the support of the one we serve, and that's all that matters. This brings us to a very important question. What does it mean to treat the sinning believer like a Gentile or a tax collector? Keep in mind, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was a former tax collector. And Jesus did not despise Matthew, but Jesus went after him and called him and invited him into a saving relationship. So Jesus is not saying we despise the sinning person or not talk to them or cut off all forms of communication with them. Rather, he's saying we love them and bless them and invite them and keep sharing the good news with them like we would do to someone who is outside of the faith. This person is not showing any fruit of salvation in their life, so we treat them like we would treat a non-Christian, an unbeliever. So what does that mean practically? It means such a person, a sinning believer, is welcome to worship with us and participate in a corporate worship experience like this so they can receive the teachings from God's Word, which in turn can bring conviction and repentance. Just like unbelievers are welcome to worship with us and hear the teachings of God's Word, in the same way, even sinning believers are not shunned from the fellowship in that way, but they're welcome to worship with us. But unbelievers cannot become members of our church. They cannot take any leadership positions. And they're not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. And all of these prohibitions will apply to the sinning believer who refuses to repent. It may seem harsh, But once again, the object is to redeem them from their sinful ways and restore them in their relationship with God. God's heart is not to condemn anybody, but God's heart always is for redemption. And that is the attitude the church has to demonstrate to those who have sinned. Not an attitude of condemnation, but one of redemption, inviting them to restore their relationship with God and with the rest of the community. Now, as I said, this is such a foreign teaching. You don't always hear these things being taught. But God's Word addresses this, and that is why we are doing it. We are honoring the teachings of God's Word here. If you're wondering, why is this all such a big deal? Why all these complicated steps of navigating through conflict? What if we just stop talking to the person who has offended us? What if we just give them a cold shoulder, those we don't like? And what, for heaven's sake, if we just leave this church and find a different church? 
After all, this is not the only church in the city. Now, questions like these miss the heart of the gospel. For the way we navigate conflict as a church testifies to the power of the gospel and the uniqueness of this community of new people that God is building called the church, which is the spiritual family of God. And this spiritual family ought to be distinct from the rest of the world. And this is how we show our distinction in the way we relate with one another differently. But what did Jesus say? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, that is the distinguishing mark of a church, the distinguishing mark of a Christian. The way we love one another helps the community around us to come to know Jesus. So when we resolve conflicts in a godly way, it is a powerful demonstration of the love and forgiveness that we have received from Jesus. It confirms that we are part of this strong-knit spiritual family where we don't just sever relationships. It also brings the accountability piece to the equation. Now hear me. Conflicts can be messy. It can be downright ugly. Churches have been torn apart and individuals deeply, deeply hurt when it is handled improperly. So I can't overemphasize in this message on the importance of right attitude marked by humility and love for this Matthew 18 principle to work in our midst. But when we deal with conflicts in a godly manner. It puts the spotlight on the gospel of how God still works through flawed human beings. Let me share this story in closing. Several years ago, I was part of a, a small Bible college, and I saw the power of reconciliation in action. It gave me a beautiful glimpse of how believers are to resolve conflict in a godly way. Now, two guys who were part of the Bible college, who were students, argued over something very silly. I don't even remember the reason why they fought. But it happened right before me and a few others while we were sitting together. And these two started raising their voices. And unkind words were being spoken. And we had to intervene in order to stop them from fighting. And those two guys refused to speak to each other after that incident. And this went on for a few days. And it was very awkward because it was a small Bible college, a very small student body. And we were such a tight-knit community, a spiritual family. Just days later, unbeknownst to all this, one of the visiting professors shared a devotional message in, in the chapel service on resolving conflict and extending forgiveness. And it's almost like he knew exactly what was going on in the student body, except he didn't. 
He had no clue, and it was the Holy Spirit of God who was speaking. You know, all through that chapel service, I kept glancing at those two guys. And in my heart, I was saying, guys, this message is for you. I hope you are listening. By the way, I don't recommend you ever do that. When you hear a sermon, don't look at someone and say that that message is for you. I was immature at the time. So at the end of the service, my eyes were still on those two. And I was wondering, how are they going to react? What is going on in their mind? At the end of the chapel service, the older student went up to the younger one and he apologized. He said, I never should have spoken those words. I was too harsh with you. The younger man on his part admitted his fault. And he said, I should have respected you. I never should have raised my voice. And before I knew it, these two guys who had almost come to blows a few days earlier, were now holding each other in such a warm embrace. And you can just see the tears just streaming. And that was an emotional moment, not just for them, but for all of us who were part of this. Because that day we saw the Lord at work in a beautiful way, removing and uprooting bitterness and grudge and forgiveness and reconciliation flowed as a result. And our little community that day tasted a little bit of the good news of Jesus and how it ought to be lived out in spiritual families. And I tell you, nothing exemplifies the power of the gospel than when we leave our pride and egos behind and we humble ourselves and we acknowledge our faults before one another. It is a beautiful representation of how God intended His spiritual family to function. So let me ask you, have you stopped talking to another Christian? Have you cut off all forms of communication with them because you both are in conflict? It may be someone in your family, someone in your circle of friends, a community group member, someone who's part of the local church. I want to encourage you today to not just be a hearer of God's Word, but a doer of God's Word. And we don't just walk away from here saying, well, that's, that's a good sermon. We grow when we put these words into practice. Transformation happens as we act on obedience to God's Word. So if you have a relationship that has ended up in a conflict in the past and you have not resolved it with another believer, then you need to make up your mind today how you're going to apply this Matthew 18 principle to your situation. The worship team is going to come forward and lead us in a song. We're going to basically sing the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. 
So I'm going to ask us to stand right now. And even as we sing this song, I want you to ask the question we always ask here at the end of the service. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Is there someone in your life you need to reconcile with?